This week, he made an unprecedented gesture in the Catholic Church saying that God will forgive agnostics and atheists as long as they behave morally and live according to their consciences. Isn't that interesting? As long as they behave morally and live according to their consciences, God will forgive them. He says, and I quote, God forgives those who obey their conscience, end quote. Uh, He goes on to talk about this when he says, the question for those who do not believe in God is to follow their own conscience. Sin, even for a non-believer, is when one goes against one's conscience. To listen and to follow your conscience means that you understand the difference between good and evil. Isn't that fascinating? That his own mechanism for handling unbelief is to be good, to do good. Uh, It's interesting that that is his approach. It is also interesting that Kenny Chesney's approach is money. And what I want to do this morning as we look at this third, uh, at this second beast or third member of the unholy trinity is to see how common culture and religion are setting us up to believe a host of lies that really paves the way for this final triumvirate, this third person of the unholy trinity, uh, this uh, this false prophet. Let me uh, share with you on the screen just a little diagram to help you understand. And when you see that, we know the Holy Trinity. We have Father, uh, uh, God the Father at the top. And then, uh, go ahead and just click next there, Chris. It should pop up. Here's the unholy Trinity. Now over here, God the Father. And then uh, we'll uh, see how Satan mimics him as the devil, referred to in the book of Revelation as the dragon. Over here we see God the Son, who is Christ. Over here on the unholy trinity, the Antichrist, the first beast that we talked about last week. Over here the spirit, we'll see how the uh, false prophet, the second beast, uh, tries, attempts to do the work of the spirit. And so you have this mimicking of God uh, during the period of the Great Tribulation, and that's what we talk about. Uh, this morning we encounter the, uh, the false prophet or the second beast, and we discover from Revelation 13 three characteristics of him. Number one, he will be deceptive in his appearance. Number two, he will be impressive in his performance. Number three, he will be persuasive in his influence. So he will be uh, deceptive in his appearance. First of all, he rises out of the earth. Uh, Last week, the Antichrist rose out of the sea. He had horns. He had multiple heads. He uh, was uh, uh, an intimidating figure. The false prophet rises out of the earth, which is less intimidating, number one. Number two, he only has two horns like a lamb. Uh, Lambs are not intimidating-looking animals. You don't look at them and want to turn and run the other way. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 15, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are. Ferocious wolves. 
The false prophet, as he is identified three different times later in the book of Revelation, here identified as the second beast, the false prophet looks great on the outside. He is deceptive in his appearance. So during this time, I believe that the next great event in history will be the rapture. If it is, if the rapture is the next great event in history, And those people who come to Christ after the rapture, those people who come to Christ after the rapture will be privy to the preaching of this false prophet. What does he do? He exercises all authority of the first beast. Uh, Someone has named him the minister of propaganda for the Antichrist. He is the guy who puts the good spin on everything He will be so convincing and will make much of the mortal wound that was healed. Uh, Joe read that here. The mortal wound that was healed on the Antichrist will be the marketing strategy for this unholy trinity. He will make much of that mortal wound. He will make much of the Antichrist being, I believe, raised from the dead. Uh, This false prophet appeals to our desire for hype. That's what it does. We have an insatiable desire for hype as people. Uh, How do we know that? Last year, 2012, $500 billion was spent on advertising. $500 billion was spent to get you to buy a certain kind of blue jeans, to get you to uh, buy Geico insurance. Geico even has an ad celebrating how many ads they've done, all right? One of their most recent ads says this is our and gives the number of the ad. Now, anybody I would think would say, okay, if they're spending all of that money on advertising, perhaps their product could suffer in the meantime. But we are all about hype. And so this uh, false prophet uh, will appeal to that. He will be deceptive in his appearance. And so we are all about appearance, not by about what lies beneath. We want a brand name. Uh, Even if it is the same quality, the brand name, we want more because it says something about us. It says this is who you are. If you have this tag or if you wear, we are so about hype. The false prophet will be deceptive in his appearance. Secondly, the false prophet will be impressive in his performance. Verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come from heaven to earth in front of people. Uh, This false prophet can do some pretty spectacular things. Some things that will wow us. Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking for false Christ. And false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. Notice what Jesus says. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. This false prophet will be so impressive. He will be so good with propaganda. He will be so good with the image of the Antichrist and making it so appealing and so attractive that people will swoon to him, fall for him, want to be where he is. Even so, uh, he will go to the point of making fire fall down from heaven. 
Now, why is that huge? Because when you think of fire coming down from heaven, what do you think of? Or who do you think of? Elijah. We automatically think of Elijah. 1 Kings 18. What happens? Ahab is this wicked king. Elijah is this godly prophet. Ahab uh, has 450 prophets of Baal, who is a false god. Elijah is alone, uh, and they go up to a mountain. And when they go up to the, to the mountain, uh, Elijah challenges them. And he says, all right, what I want you to do is you take one bull, I'll take two. You set up your altar, I'll set up mine. You call to your gods, I'll call to mine. And we'll see who rains fire down from heaven and and devours this altar. And so the followers of Baal do just that. They they, uh, arrange the altar. They, Ahab uh, uh, and the 450 prophets, arrange the altar. It's a fascinating, kind of funny picture. And so they lift around the altar uh, that they have made. They called on their... Uh, God, Baal, and no one answered. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or relieving himself. Elijah went there. Maybe he had to go to the bathroom. Either he is musing or relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then God, uh, Elijah, uh, says, pour water. Uh, Pour it again the second time. Pour it again the third time. You see, there's no uh, superlative in, in Hebrew. You can't say best in Hebrew. The word doesn't exist. So what you do is you put things in numbers. Elijah did it three times to say we have the most water on the altar we could possibly have. He bows his head, he prays, and the God of heaven just devours two bulls, all the water, immediately. In this day, John saw in his revelation, the second beast, the false prophet, will be so persuasive that he'll be able to call fire down from heaven. And calling fire down from heaven has, since Elijah, indicated that that was the real God. Don't miss that. It was proof positive that Baal was fake and that God was real. Now reverse those. And when the false prophet can do what Elijah did, what's going to happen? Everybody's going to say he must be the real deal. You say, Jerry, how does that apply to me? I would say to you, if you sit here this morning and you come to church to be entertained. If you spend your life for one entertaining experience after another, the, the false prophet appeals to our desire for hype, number one. Number two, he appeals to our desire for entertainment. Just last night at 9 o'clock, there was a, a boxing match, right? 
two guys punching each other. If I heard correctly, is his name Mayweather? You know this, right? Yeah. Mayweather got paid, I think, $42 million just to walk into the ring. And so I pulled the guys down here to see how many of them will get knocked out for $42 million. They're up for it. Uh, as long as they tithe, we'll watch. But, um, but at any rate, think about this. Do you think that your grandparents, please hear me, because we have a tendency to live in our slice of life and forget what was or what could be. Do you think your grandparents ever thought they would ever see the day where a man would be paid $42 million, not to win, but to walk into the ring? Do you think they ever thought they would see that day? No. The deception of the false prophet is most likely going to be so easy because we can't get enough entertainment. We can't get enough. We have an insatiable desire to be entertained. Said Jerry, how should this inform me today? Question number one Are you more about hype or substance? Question number two Would you rather be entertained or engaged? Would you rather be entertained or engaged? I talked to someone who whose daughter struggles with this whole sermon series, she said, I don't get it because my daughter has no issue with Harry Potter. I said, well, Harry Potter isn't true. This is. The truth engages you. Entertainment does not. What entertainment does is it shuts down all the faculties that work. It shuts them down. We've known for years TV does this. It's called vegging out. That's what entertainment does. doesn't matter if it's a fight, a football game, whatever it does. That's the purpose of it. That's the point of it is to entertain you. Engagement involves you. The false prophet will be impressive in his performance. And by the signs, verses 14 and 15, that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, the Antichrist, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so the false prophet says, uh, make an image. Build up this image. And once they make the image, notice what he does. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. You talk about something entertainment, entertaining. Let's make something. So they make something out of uh, whatever material they make it out of. And God puts this false prophet on enough rope to hang himself. And, and Satan, incidentally, is on that same length of rope. And so that he gives him the power to make the beast breathe. So the beast begins to breathe. And when the beast begins to breathe, uh, the image of the beast even speaks and and might cause those who would not worship uh, the image of the beast to be slain. Wow. This is so entertaining. 
Here's, a, here's an inanimate object that all of a sudden has animate uh, capabilities. And so we look at it, and you know that it's going to be circulated immediately. Why? Because of, of cell phones and stuff. I mean, anything happens now within seconds, it's everywhere. The false prophet will be impressive in his performance, deceptive in his appearance, and he will be persuasive in his influence. Verses 16 and 17, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about all of these crazy things? We were talking about the trumpets and uh, uh, the seals and, and the bowls of wrath. All of that that's going to be happening during this time period. How else would you get people to follow the Antichrist but by appealing to their desire for hype, appealing to their desire for entertainment, and number three, appealing to their desire for material possessions, for stuff. We have an insatiable desire for stuff, don't we? We just do. We do. So what is he going to do? He is going to enact a boycott of sorts. Either you take this mark, which is the number of the beast, the number of the Antichrist, which is 666. Either you take the mark or you don't buy and you don't sell. Now this mirrors Revelation 7 where God marks his people. And so Satan is trying to mimic God. God marks his people in Revelation 7. He seals his own people. Uh, So those people sealed by God will not be sealed by the mark of this beast. But those people left on the earth who are Christians then will face certain death. The inability to buy and sell because of the mark. They refuse to take the mark of the beast. How is it that he could get rich and poor, small and great? How can he do it? He's persuasive in his influence. This shows us that no socioeconomic class will escape the influence of the false prophet, not one. He'll do it through the economic system. I want you to imagine the last 24 hours of your life if you could not buy or sell. For some of you, that would mean necessities. You had to buy gas maybe this morning just to get here to church. So if the last 24 hours you couldn't buy or sell, what would not have happened in your world and in your life? What wouldn't you have eaten? What groceries would not be in your house today? What uh, gas would not be in your vehicles today? Perhaps for some of you, it's not necessities. It's just hobbies or it's clothes or uh, whatever it may be. But we have an insatiable desire to buy. We like to spend money, don't we? Some people don't. I realize there are exceptions to the rule. They like money. They just don't like to spend it. But a lot of us like money and we like to spend it. His influence, the way to influence rich and poor, uh, those who have and those who do not have alike, is economics. Why? Because it affects all of us. It affects every single one of us. The latest economic downturn. I've talked to folks in our church who, who in that latest round in their stocks lost between forty dollars and $100,000. And then there were people in our church who lost their jobs. 
For those who have more, they lose more. For those who have less, what they lose hits them harder. Economics affects everyone. When there's a downturn, it affects everybody. What the false prophet ushers in is a one-world government. He ushers in a one-world economic system. And that system then, if there's a worldwide boycott, and when there's a worldwide boycott, the result of that is those who want to buy, they want to eat, they have to get the mark. And if they do not, they don't. How in the world could you you convince billions of people to do this? Appeal to our desire for hype. Appeal to our desire for entertainment. And then finally, appeal to our desire for stuff. And you've got us. Hook, line, and sinker. I would ask you this morning, as we sang the song, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh Lord, how I need you. Do you really live like that? Do you really live? Do you do your marriage with that song in mind? Do you run your business with that song in mind? Do you lead your practice with that song in mind? Do you live your life with that song in mind? You say, Jerry, why must we go here? And why must we nail this down? How tragic would it be If Christ were to come back today and I had shirked my responsibilities and told you stories that made you feel good about yourself and said things to you that made you think, hey, I've got it all together or I threw an extra 20 in the plate, preacher. Didn't you notice? What if I did that? And what if Christ were to come back? I think for for some of you, If the rapture took place, you wouldn't go because you don't know Christ. But let's say you are not of that persuasion. You believe the church will be through the tribulation, as some very good thinkers are. I think there's some of us so weak in our faith, we would fall immediately away. We get to probably the most off talked about verse in all of scripture this number 666 john says something here that people for uh, 2,000 years have refused to do what does he say this calls for wisdom and you know what people do when they get to this verse we'll throw wisdom right out the door and so what do people do well they try to figure out who the antichrist is I loved it. After my first, or no, about three weeks ago, a sixth grader, seventh grader came up to me, and he said, Pastor Jerry, I said, yes. He said, uh, could you tell me who you think the Antichrist is? Well, sure. You know, Mickey Mouse. I don't know. I don't know who the Antichrist is. And let me go on record by saying I think it's futile to try to figure it out. Why? Daniel 12.10, Daniel said, when these times come, you will have understanding. When they come. Please hear me when they come. Here's what I'm convinced of. David Jeremiah, who's a heavy hitter in this area, backs me up on this. Here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced of this. That saints who are alive in the great tribulation and see the Antichrist rise to power and begin to read the book of Revelation are going to go, whoa, that's him. That's him. That's him. Yes, that's him. Yes, that's him. And then here's how the number works. Something called gematria that they used in that day. Every number 
every name had a number. So what you would do is you take the name, and then the first nine letters of the Greek alphabet were numbers one through nine. The next nine letters were 10 through 90, and so on. And so what you would do is you would take a, a, a name, take the Greek alphabet, take the letters of that name, and come up with a number. There was an off-quoted saying by one of the emperors, I love her, whose number is 545. And so he would say that, and people would try to figure out, well, who could it be that the emperor loves? John's not trying to puzzle us. This isn't for us unless we're living during the Great Tribulation. This is for the people living during the Great Tribulation. What does he say when he comes on the rise do the gematria, and you will discover that his name matches the numbers 666. It is simply guidance for the people reading the revelation of John when the Antichrist rises out of the sea and rises to power and the false prophet does his amazing things. So please quit wasting time trying to figure out who it is now. Why? Irenaeus, who lived 100 years after John, all right? So he's only 100 years removed. He, he could have, you know, he knew people who knew John, couldn't figure it out. If Irenaeus, who lived 100 years after John, can't figure it out, guess what? Those of us who live 2,000 years later, unless we're living during the tribulation, won't either. Absurd people have been said to be the Antichrist. Back in the day, it was Ronald Reagan. It was. Commonly, commonly thought by many people, Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. They took his name in English, uh, uh, went over to Greek letters, and then did the Gematria. Something tells me that John didn't know English. Hello? What are we thinking? All right, so I'm guessing that we egocentric, English-speaking, think everybody in the world is like us people who aren't going to figure this out by beginning with English. Hitler, many people said it was Hitler who, who, who was the Antichrist. Well, he was a Antichrist. There's no doubt about that. Jesus said many of those would come. There's some of those alive today. They're in the elementary schools, in the high schools. They're in the public forum. Antichrists are everywhere. There's no doubt about that. You know what you do? Please hear me. And I know I'm nailing some people right now, and I'm doing it with love. But you know what you do? When you spend all of your time trying to figure out who he is, you are losing sight of who Jesus is, and that's a mockery. That is no different than Kenny Chesney, who says, throw a 20 in the plate, and it's horrific, horrific that Pope Francis makes so much light of the cross of Christ as to say, if you're atheist and agnostic and you don't believe, just follow your conscience. Jesus didn't die so you could have a clean conscience. He died so you could be free from your sin problem. And that will give you a clean conscience. And how horrible that the crucifix, which he shouldn't wear anyway, but the crucifix that he wears, which has a crucified Christ on it, is the only way that anyone can be saved. It is the only way. There is no other way. There is none. Absolutely at all. We must do nothing, especially those of us who delight in studying God's word, We must do nothing to detract from Jesus. Please hear me. He is our one defense. He is our righteousness. We have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. None. 
None. Our government will not save us, folks. We can elect until, uh, until we turn blue in the face. We've not had one conservative who's helped the cause. We haven't had a liberal who's helped the cause. Only Christ can save. He alone is our hope. Some of you probably grew up reading Choose Your Own Adventure books. Anybody familiar with those? All right. Choose Your Own Adventure books. There's little books and you, you buy them, there's a hundred or so of those things. You buy them, I looked at uh, one this week uh, uh, about, the, about a haunted house. Little kid, he, his dog runs away and he goes looking for it and he goes by a haunted house. And when he does, he's sitting there on a bench outside the haunted house and he hears his dog in the house. All right, if you've read these, you're smiling right now because at the bottom of that page, it says, if you choose to go in the house, turn to page so-and-so. If you choose to run, turn to page so-and-so. And you choose your own adventure, right? And so if you choose to go in the house, you never know. You could die. If you choose to run away, you could still die. You don't know how it's going to turn out. Thus, the adventure of choose your own adventure books. Could I say something to you? The book of life, there's one choice. There's just one. You will either choose, and with everything in me, I want you to do this. You will either choose Christ, and you will live. Or you will not choose Christ, and you will die. There are not multiple roads. There are not multiple choices. There's one choice that you get to make. And I can stand on this stage and say to you today, he has never let me down. Not for a split second. He has never lost sight of me. He has never left me uncared for. He has always been there. He will be there now. He will be there then. An extra 20 in the plate isn't going to do it. A good conscience is temporary. have one choice. My question to you this morning is what will it be? Or better yet, who will it be? Let's pray. Father, As followers of you, we worship, we rejoice that you are our one defense, our righteousness. God, we need you. God, we sing that song with deep emotion because we who once were lost have been found. As we'll see in a few weeks when we stand before the judgment, we will come with boldness but not arrogance, with confidence but not cockiness. Because Jesus, you who have prayed for us, 
even today. Will even then present us to the Father. Clothed in your righteousness. I pray for anyone in the room who is lost in his or her sin, who's bought into hype, came this morning to be entertained, perhaps. Who has lived a life to get stuff that they today, Jesus, will find you. I pray this in your great name and for your glory. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing this chorus we've sung, song we've sung twice already today. I beg you, if you don't know Christ and he is pounding on your heart, come. And be saved today. Let's let's worship the Lord together this morning.